Hey guys, welcome to the 76th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we're talking about a director's vision, what that means, how you communicate it to your crew and your cast, and uh, whether it's a little bit of gobbledygook or what the validity of having quote-unquote vision actually means. We'll also answer some listener questions and uh, catch up like normal. Speaking of that, I... I haven't talked to you for a couple weeks because uh, I've been kind of busy, but what have you been working on lately, Matt? Yeah, man. I, um, I, you know, listeners of the show will know I was um, deep, deep in post and production on a bunch of stuff. And so I, uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I kind of have emerged having delivered a handful of things, um, some commercials, one of my series is put to bed. Um, and so I'm just in post on a bunch of stuff and trying to enjoy the waning days of summer. It was a pretty big summer for me. So like just tried to catch some movies and hang out. Life is good, man. You see any good movies? Uh, what did I see? Well, I saw the first Harry Potter movie in Pasadena last night. That was great. Cool. And then what? I saw something else before. Oh, well, I went and saw Goodfellas. I saw Goodfellas. Um, oh, another new one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As you know, I love outdoor screening. So um, I had a great time. Ate some good food. And uh, feeling recharged and ready to go. I'm in that that mode now where the next few projects are beginning to solidify and I'm kind of figuring out what the rest of my year looks like. So it's been pretty great. You know, it's meetings and phone calls and all that stuff and and development mode all over again. Uh, But I'm ready and excited. Uh, What about you, Orton? What have you been working on lately? Well, I also saw an old movie very recently. We watched Coming to America last night at the cemetery screening. Yeah, buddy. At the cemetery. Have you ever told someone from out of town that you go to see movies at the cemetery? No, but I even I think it's weird to see movies at a cemetery. It's a little weird. It's a little weird. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really fun. And uh, that movie holds up. I think it holds up. You, you couldn't make it nowadays. I don't think it makes sense mm-hmm. <laughs> with the Internet. Right. Right. But it was hilarious. Yeah, it's always a warm crowd at one of those screenings as well, so that's great. I think the cemetery does the best programming of all of the competing outdoor screening series in Los Angeles. The cemetery is the best. Well, anyway, so I did that. I also had my Converse shoot, which was probably one of my favorite shoots of the entire year. We shot 10 spots over four days. Uh, Right. And... What's kind of interesting is the three days before those four days were Labor Day weekend. And those were the three days we had to build all the sets. So everyone was working for pretty much seven days straight. Like Converse came in, we had all our our pre-production meeting on Labor Day. And it is part of the, I mean, everyone knows this, I assume, but it's part of the fun, but also challenge of working in the film industry is holidays are like very low on the priority list (laughs) for when you're scheduling things. Yeah. Typically I find them a little frustrating because I'll have something I need to get done. And executives are the only people who don't work on holidays and agents. So like anyone that has like a full-time office job. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, we're all, you know, working our tails off and then you need a question from the lawyer and, uh, you know, they took the whole week off because they have paid vacation and are normal people. (laughs) Right. And my mom will invite me to a Labor Day barbecue like two months before Labor Day. Right. And I always have to tell her like, I maybe I'll go if I have nothing else going on. But Labor Day does not mean that I'm not going to be working. Yeah. Well, I had a really good time. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about this topic of a director's vision versus a director's approach is that it's something I've been thinking a lot lately, especially about this this job specifically because when I pitched on it I had a very specific idea of how it would be it actually I take that back I wasn't even very specific but I pitched it in a very specific way because I think as commercial directors or any directors whenever anyone is asking us how we would make something we try to bring something new we try to be specific we always talk about casting and performances and tone and art direction We talk about how we want to shoot it and, you know, what the style is and if it's going to be saturated or desaturated. 
But honestly, like a lot of times I don't really know what I'm going to do. I'm just trying to get the job. Yeah. And it's also hard because you've only had a few preliminary conversations and like we all know that thing, the creative is going to evolve and that that's part of the process. So it's always a little bit strange uh, to pitch on the creative at that point. You know, it's, it's, right. uh, it's, I feel like it's, it's half pitching the creative and half just kind of explaining, you know, why you're good to work with, you know, like I always talk a lot about right. approach and style and voice, uh, on top of all that. Yeah. And that's something that, but uh, this new company I've been working with is, is really big on it, which is the, you're basically convincing the client that you're a good partner and a good collaborator and that you care about what they think, but also bring new things and are confident enough to bring this to the finish line in a cohesive way. The the benefit of having a decent reel um, is that there's a little bit of a barrier to entry of just like, oh, can this person execute? Yes or no. And once you've done it enough times and you have enough big budget stuff on your reel, they just know you can because you've done it a bunch of times. And so like that's as good as it gets. And so it kind of just becomes you know, the, the next level of the equation is like, oh, yes, this person can execute, but do we want to execute with them and are they going to bring something extra to it? Right, and are they going to respect us? Like, we've gone back and forth with the client. The agency people have gone back and forth with the client 20, 30 times. They finally came to an agreement and they don't want a new director to say, oh, I hate this, let's change everything. Oh, what if we did this? Well, and also in agency situations, you know, they typically have worked on a brand for years. You know what I mean? Like an agency will will carry a, an account for decades sometimes, you know? I don't know, did you see um, the agency, I'm blanking on their name now, the one that did the jack-in-the-box spots for 30 years? You know, the, the it was like... They had just a handful of uh, of accounts. Jack in the Box being the main one. The guy Jack is literally the owner of the company and the voice, and so like they got rid of him. They got rid of the agency, and like now there's a new Jack. And it took like you'll notice there's like a weird lull where there were no Jack featured spots basically and you couldn't figure like the identity of the whole brand just was totally out of whack and weird. And now they've got this rip off basically yeah no those change all the time but back to converse what happened on this is i pitched something i pitched uh like a certain idea i had that kind of seemed to satisfy all the things that it needed to that i was comfortable doing and you showed me those boards i i I would describe them as like you know it's a little extreme and a little like not intense, but it's kind of like heightened and amped up and like you did a lot of Photoshop of like really illustrating the kind of uh, zaniness or the, the the size of the the impact of these jokes, basically. And I guess in a certain way, kind of how serious we're taking the product, these totally zany products. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You kind of wanted like a, a grounded take on these big explosive ideas but what happened is our production designer caitlin she came and pitched i i told her what sets i needed i told her i want like a a pitch set i want like a demo area where we can demonstrate these products i wanted a kitchen and i wanted a living room and then and then i wanted some other kind of random little swing sets but those were my four main spot main areas and she came back with a design (laughs) that was like so different than any of the references I gave to her. And it was based on this little tiny conversation we had where she said, I've kind of really been into like norm core style recently. And I want to be inspired by that. And I was like, sure, that sounds cool. I mean, it's like making a decision of some sort. And she sent me this book and I was like, Hmm, this is just like kind of weird. It's cool. It's like really cool. But it's also just like so different than anything I've ever done. And it doesn't feel like my voice at all. But it's cool. And then I talked to Blake about it, who's the uh, one of the creative producers on the project. And he had the same impression that I did. But the more we talked about it, the more like excited we got about it. And the more we realized this was a bold decision. Just to set the table for people a little bit. It's like your pitch was like, kind of more like you're in 
sound stages and backyards and that sort of kind of like real world places. And then Caitlin came back with these pitches that were like much more stylized and heightened and um, avant-garde almost. So it's a lot of like neutral colors and pastels, very, very limited color palette. So like white walls and white tables and a white carpet or teal or, you know, like kind of like almost almost a little retro, a little 80s. There's just th- three or four colors basically for every single frame. Yeah, I, I mean, my take was not grounded. I knew we were going to shoot everything on stage, but my take was kind of based on stuff I had seen on TV, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the genre that we were working in. And her take was just a totally original thing. Something that I had told her early on is that I'd love to work in like a limited color palette. And there's these Honda commercials that I've been seeing a lot with this big wheel where everyone in each scene is like wearing like all green or all purple or all mm. blue. The walls are blue and everything. And I thought that was cool. And I've always wanted to do that, but never quite had the budget or the time to control every single element that's in front of the camera to achieve that. So I had mentioned it kind of offhandedly and she really embraced it. So there's only five colors uh, that we use in all 11 spots um, for our sets, for our props. Mm-hmm. for everything the floor the, the there's nothing that is not one of these five colors except for the people in the wardrobe but everything else falls in in these five colors and textures and those five colors and textures were we went back and forth with converse a lot to figure out what they were they did not like approve her original design but once that design was in so what caitlin sends me is a pdf file that has here's the textures here's the colors i want to use and here's uh, Google SketchUp, you know, it's like a 3D rendering program of what each set will look like approximately. Just the walls, not the not the set decoration, not the furniture, not the props, nothing, just what the walls will look like. And based off of that, we changed the entire direction of the entire campaign. So much so that Converse said they want to change their stores to look more like what our set looked like. Crazy. You know, I signed an NDA and then got to look at some stills, uh, and they look awesome. It looks, it looks, it's super cool. It's really striking. You can see like it's clickable just as the thumbnail. It's it's super exciting. So, um, but I think the thing that you wanted to talk about, right, in terms of vision, right, is like sometimes there's a little bit of uh, an apprehension that like, oh, I'm the boss, I'm the director, it's supposed to be my idea, and if it's not my idea, then I am i don't have vision to guide the crew, or um, I should be telling people what to do or something. I think that's a, like a common sort of immature understanding of what directing is, right? What you did and what really paid off is enabling all of these, uh, all of your collaborators bring something new and exciting to the table and then to recognize what's awesome about that. Yeah. And I didn't even do it on purpose, you know, specifically I, <laughs> sure. I, 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 I had an approach of how I wanted to approach the show, but when someone showed me something that I thought was way cooler than my idea was, I was willing to pivot and change my vision, which I'm putting in air quotes into to take advantage of this awesome production design. And that, that that's kind of, I think, the core of the topic that I wanted to talk to you about is like, at first there's a little bit of shame where it's like, well, it's not my idea to make these awesome sets and to do these specific colors and and really commit to making a unique thing. I, I was really approaching this more as like a parody when I started out and now it ended up just being something much more original and unique and we'll see whether it works or not. You know, I'm not saying it's necessarily the right answer, but I'm saying everyone got really excited about an original idea as opposed to copying something, which was my initial approach to this. You know, sometimes as a director, I've seen directors be embarrassed that when other people have like better ideas than them. But I think the longer I work in this business, the more I realize that that's part of our job. And it's something that you told me when I called you and I was like, think I was a little concerned because I was like this is I feel weird because it's not my idea but it's like a better idea and I want to do it yeah I think it's just you know a director's job is to course correct and I think it's funny I think we both find ourselves saying less and less um, the more we work 
because you're just hiring good people and then kind of giving them the parameters and letting them run with it and bring things back to you. And then, you know, sometimes you do have to say no, right? And that's always a bummer. Like you never want uh, someone to really feel like they're going above and beyond and bringing their creativity and like you have to rein them in, you know? So it's like about setting up those parameters early on if you can. But um, saying yes is just as powerful as saying no. I do feel like my initial instinct sometimes is to say no because it's different than what I had told the client. Yeah, especially in client work, it's tricky. You know, and I think also uh, kudos to your whole team, right? Because you had to, it would be easy, and we've worked with producers who wouldn't entertain the idea of stepping away from something consistent with what was on brief like people complain about like yes it may be a good idea but it needs to be on brief on brief on brief that's the that's the job in most circumstances and it's awesome that you were able to recognize a cool idea and then pitch it up the line in a way that landed for everybody right now everybody's happy everybody's excited but like certainly there are creative executives who uh would just be like no that's not what i wanted this guy doesn't is, is is just screwing everything up and being able to sense when you can speak up and when you have the trust of a client and an agency and when, when it's appropriate to bring that stuff up is again is all part of that experience like it's a huge bummer when you get an awesome crew member who pitches a great idea to you and you know that everyone's going to resist it even though you know it's a good idea that happens with jokes all the time it's really rough well what make, made this easy is that I got so excited by it. And I, I want to stress that the design of the sets, like the repercussions it had were to the entire shoot. Like it affected the casting. It affected the pacing of the performances. It affected the props, the gags, the edit, the graphics, like everything that I had planned. Basically I threw out the window cause I was really going to go for a little more like broad SNL sketchy in the beginning and it's still very broad, but it's it got really weird, but not in like an adult swim type. It's kind of our own weird. It's like a poppy, clean weird. <laughs> that makes sense. It's not like a lo-fi Eric Andre weird. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so it's when I was on set at one point, someone said, asked me like what my vision was for a specific thing. And you, you and I have both had this experience where someone is referring to our vision and we feel like instantly uncomfortable because it's like we would never use that word we never we never we don't think of ourselves as visionaries we think of ourselves as filmmakers and collaborators and people that are like bringing people together and building something and it's our job to to figure out what the goal of this content is what the edit's going to be like what the casting's going to be like and how all these pieces fit together to make something good and cohesive i think people are paying us for that just as much as they are for our cool unique ideas or an interesting take or uh, a cool camera angle yeah take and vision are the same thing in a lot of ways it's just that you and i are both pragmatists we've had to produce on so many different scales that we know exactly what it takes to get something made and vision has a little bit of a you know not to paint people with too broad of a brush but like oftentimes vision people talking about their vision are the people who are maybe less experienced and a little privileged with the idea that a director is an auteur and their vision is, you know, paramount. When I first started making like YouTube videos back in the day, you know, in 2000 or whenever it was, uh, I feel like I had more of a vision per se. I would write a script and then I would imagine how it would look and then I would try to go shoot it in the way that looked like that. And I would draw little storyboards and I would really try to control it from the the beginning to the end. Then I'd edit it the same way I shot it because I didn't shoot a lot of coverage because I knew how I wanted to edit it. Um, And now I'm like the exact opposite. Now I just have an idea and an approach. And, you know, we talk about this all the time. We make some rules for ourselves of how we're going to shoot this or what this is based on. And we try to approach things in that way, but we're always shooting a little extra and we're always leaving ourselves open to be opportunists in terms of finding better things. Well, I I guess there's the thought of like um, shooting with intention, which is the thing that 
every filmmaker should do. Have a plan, have an idea of how you want it to look and feel. And it, that you could call that vision, right? That's like the less highfalutin version of vision, right? Um, and then there's, you know, nor I always I always joke when I ever refer to my own vision, it's when a producer is coming to me with a problem that they think I'm going to be upset about and to kind of diffuse the situation when I say, oh, it's okay that, you know, now we can't afford the drone that I wanted. I'll always go, but my vision. Right. And it makes producers feel a little bit better because they know that <clears throat> I'm on their side and also, you know, uh, make we're all in this together to make something cool but also I am sacrificing something so you can be a little self-effacing about your vision but if you're Wes Anderson or Tim Burton or uh, Neil Blomkamp like all those specifics like don't you feel like Wes Anderson cares exactly what kind of shoe his actor is wearing or what the wallpaper yeah, is he, or where the window is in the room or how fast someone he's is the sort of performing. guy who gets to say my vision yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if you've got a handful of hit movies and Oscars under your belt, yeah, you're allowed to say my vision and no one's going to like groan at you the same way. Um, but look, man, if you look at Bottle Rocket, no one's wearing fancy shoes in that movie. Well, but the thing is, I guess I don't think of the vision as being something that is something that a director says or wants to have to me it's like an onus when someone's like well tell us what your vision is mm -hmm. it's like i feel like i need to say something ingenious to them back right 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 well and, and, and it's like it stresses me out when people ask me about my vision as opposed to an approach where i ha it's much easier to answer i mean we're, we're arguing semantics but I, th I think that really what it boils down to for guys like us is that we know what battles we want to fight. And sometimes, yeah, it is important for your character to be wearing the right shoes if you're Wes Anderson and you need to live in this totally heightened world. And sometimes you know that it's not actually important. And, and oftentimes when people are saying, well, what's your vision and you're feeling threatened by it, I think it's because they want to hear that this decision is important and you kind of already know that it isn't. Um, and so oftentimes you just kind of have to make the call, tell them, you know, you can bullshit your way through it if you need to. And then when you're all on set and you're actually shooting and they realize it doesn't matter what sort of shoes you're wearing because you never see the shoes because you, your vision, quote unquote, is always to be in medium shots or whatever it is. And it's like it's this kind of thing where it's a way to accuse people of maybe not understanding or having control of the situation and like you're just not sweating the small stuff. I think the more experience people get, the less anyone ever questions any of that because they can see what's what, what's actually important in the thing. Does that make sense? A little bit. I don't think you had much of a vision when you started that explanation, but <laughs> I see I had a take, though. I had what a your take. approach is. When I saw, I saw the movie Foxcatcher in the theater, it's a movie with Steve Carell and Channing Tatum about you know the wrestling mm -hmm. team. And the director, Bennett Miller, was there and he gave an introduction where he said that directing, he was explaining why it took them so long to finish the movie. It was supposed to premiere the year before it actually premiered. And he said, as a director, you have the movie in your brain. And when you're on set, you're trying to make what's on the monitor match as closely to what's in your brain as possible. And he's like, every movie I make, they're a little bit closer to each other. Uh, and so to me, that's like, that's the vision version. <laughs> that's that you know exactly what you want it to look like. And now you're trying to make it look like that. And, and I do think with feature films, there's like more of that going on because it's just like a much bigger, bigger project where you're trying to really have these iconic images that, that are guideposts throughout the movie. But on commercial stuff, on branded stuff, on comedy stuff, I think there's less of that obsession with the frame of the monitor looking like the frame in your mind, unless it's like a very specific gag. Yeah, I you know I think it depends, right? Bennett Miller actually he started in commercials. He's like a kind of a commercial hero, 
Um, um, I did not know that. He did a campaign for Nikon where Ashton Kutcher is like a charming photographer. And uh, at one point, Ashton is at a wedding uh, taking pictures of bridesmaids, one of whom is my wife. Oh, yeah. Um, and that happened right at the writer's strike and like paid for basically a year of our lives. Like right when we got married. Uh, what did he do before Foxcatcher? Something. Oh, Capote. He did Capote and Foxcatcher. Yeah, Capote. Both awesome. And I think, you know, that's a good example of a person who learned their craft on commercials. You know, he did a bunch of commercials. That's that's how he got so good. It's funny. I thought Foxcatcher has like some really great performances and is good. But like my wife and I could barely stay awake. Yeah. For that movie. It was so you do long have to really be um, in the mood for it. Yeah, I saw that movie and 22 Jump Street in the same week. And that was when I realized that Channing Tatum was a movie star because he's so different and so incredible in both of those movies. So anyway, back to uh, back to Vision, wrapping it up. I think, um, you know, there's a couple things you can deal with when someone asks about your vision, right? You can let them know, like you have guideposts, you have ideas, and sometimes you're, it's okay to not know all the answers, but to you know what you're looking for and that's what people are asking for sometimes they're just saying hey what's your vision because they need to be reassured that what they're giving you is the right thing and so they are looking for a way to understand what's good or bad or how to evaluate their work right and so part of you having a vision quote unquote is being able to reassure them that you'll know it when you see it and that they can start like working towards it a little bit and sometimes I think, especially in comedy, it's a little frustrating because like it's a less is more approach that I think both you and I have where you you don't want to give them too much. You want to see what they're going to do naturally and then go from there and kind of that's their baseboard. But like just letting them know that that's the thing you're doing and that's your vision and that's your approach, I think is helpful. And then um, also don't sweat it, right? Like let yourself be surprised and let yourself kind of go with the flow when you need to yeah and i think that's kind of what my my takeaway from this is like if you just think of it as an approach instead of as a vision it will make you feel better when we were on the converse shoot i had shot listed it was a four-day shoot and i had shot listed like the first two and a half days and i told my dp jess i said uh just so you know i haven't done the last day yet and he said well that's fine as long as we know what the approach is you know we're shooting these parts like you know we have three cameras and this is the general idea for here we're shooting this part like this and lighting wise this is what we're thinking like as long as we have the approach and we've kind of talked through the different scripts i feel good about it and that made me feel really good yeah i don't need to tell him like here we're gonna do a medium and here we're gonna do a close-up and you've talked about this with bobby a lot too it's like we figure out how we're, we're approaching this and then you don't even need to have that conversation you're kind of falling into this groove together uh, so that that made me feel really good about everything and how Jess and I were going to approach it. And then Jess got into a five-car pileup on oh, his no. way to set on the first day, totaled his car, every airbag okay? went off, and he never made oh, it to wow. set. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah, he's fine. So yeah, approach. Fuck the vision. Just have an approach and you'll yeah. be all good. But I will say it's helpful when your new DP has read the script, which was not a luxury I had. The A camera operator stepped up and he's a great DP of his own, right? He's like shot, like just shot a music video for One Republic like yeah. last week. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was great. And Jess came back on day two. But but still, it's like we you have all these conversations of how you want to do right. something. And it was a really uh, aggressive mm-hmm. shoot schedule. Uh, yeah, what's, aggressive. That's the word yeah, I'm looking for. Aggressive, challenging. Um, optimistic. Uh, <laughs> that word that means like there's only in the best of conditions will you there, make there it. There wasn't a ton of margin um, for error. Anyway, we ended up doing it, so it was fine. Yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. Um, so shall we take some listener questions? Yeah, let's do it. Um, before we hop into that, guys, boy, I really, you're making me look bad with all these awesome submissions to Jacob Perlin. Um Regular listeners listeners will remember Jacob Perlin, Oren's manager at Anonymous Content, said that if uh, people emailed us at Just Shoot It with um, pitches for uh, for management opportunities, uh, Jacob would look at them. And we've gotten so many awesome people, man. It's 
crazy, huh? Uh, yeah. How many people Gosh, do we have? Do you know? know? I'm, I'm looking now. It's certainly more than the seven that I guess. Yeah. What's crazy is that they're all like pretty legitimate yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, this guy that emailed the other day is like managed by three arts and he's like just looking for new yeah. management. So we've had, yeah, we've had like really great people. And what most impressed me is that when Jacob was on the podcast, he said, if you submit anything, send me something short. I'm not going to watch your two and a half hour feature that you made with your best friend in film school. And I think every single email we got for him was like, hey, just so you know, here's this video. It's two minutes. If you want to see more, here's like the first scene from a script I wrote attached. Like nobody was like, watch yeah. this two hour yeah, movie. Good on you so guys. I was very impressed by how how our listeners listened. <laughs> Just so you guys know, we pretty much forwarded every single one on to Jacob. Every single one. We don't know what happened after that, whether he responded or not, but he saw all of them. And so thanks for sending those in. Um, we will do an official count and post it on our yeah, next probably. episode. Okay, let's take some questions. Hey, uh, my name is Elijah, and uh, my Twitter handle is B Elijah Neal, all lowercase. And uh, I, uh, I'm making a really low production film in uh, Georgia, and I'm on episode like 40. I'm calling to to ask how uh, to share big files. Do you guys use uh, Google Drive or iCloud? Uh, it's kind of my first time uh, making like a sort of uh, big film. Actually, yeah, it's my first time. So just just wondering how to share that with, with everybody. Um, love some feedback and some help. Uh, thanks for the help. So Elijah's asking what, how we send large files for film projects. What I always use and have been using for a long time is Dropbox. I started out with having like a FTP server and all sorts of insane things. And then I used WeTransfer, but now I just pay for Dropbox. I pay like a hundred bucks a year or something. I have like a hundred gigs or some ridiculous amount of room. And I just upload files to Dropbox and then send the links to other people. Yeah. For videos I, for everything. I'm a big uh, Dropbox believer as well, mostly because I like to be able to set my uh, export folders to somewhere that natively is built into Dropbox. So like, you know, you have the app on your computer so that you can literally export directly into a Dropbox folder. And that's the same for screenwriting as well. So, you know, stuff is always backed up in the cloud and that as soon as you're done exporting, your files are beginning to upload, which can be pretty helpful if you've got a big export, you know. That's what we use for this podcast. Even Matt and I record in GarageBand into Dropbox, and then our editors are synced on that Dropbox and automatically get everything we record. That, that's our move. I would just say in general, when you're dealing with any sort of tech stuff, um, it's really, I know a lot of people are really into like the cutting edge version of file transfers or noting systems, you know, there's a lot of tech heads in this industry and rightfully so it's a technologically important and cutting edge sort of, um, field. But for the most part, it's nice to be able to just send a Vimeo link or a frame IO link or a Dropbox link, because you know that they work, you know, that the other person receiving it knows how to use it. And they're just standardized and dependable and, consistent and dropbox and vimeo pay, play very nicely together actually so once something's drop uh, uploaded to dropbox you can immediately transfer it to vimeo without having to re-upload it which is really nice right i was going to say that too my other way of sending videos is through vimeo i have a vimeo pro account lets me upload a lot of videos per month and i just set a password make a private link and just send it to people and a lot of times uh, you know, for you newer people like potentially Elijah, when I send videos on Dropbox, I burn in a time code from Premiere so that people can tell me, oh, it, this frame or this second, uh, here's my note. Yeah, here's my thought on So that. even though there's time code kind of built into the Vimeo player for when I'm trying to get specific notes back, I burn the time code into the video itself. Yep, which is pretty helpful. Um, and I think the nice thing about both Dropbox and Vimeo is that when you're just starting out or maybe uh, you don't have as much money as a, a person who has to do this professionally constantly, those they both have free options as well. And those tend to be substantial and, and good enough until 
you know, you're really making your living off of it. They're, the free options are awesome. They do pretty much everything the paid options do. They just limit how much you can use them. So, yeah, those are our picks. But, um, you know, it's also not a thing worth obsessing over too much. Figure out a simple way, the easy way. Fortunately, we live in a time where technology is pretty ubiquitous and pretty cheap. So good luck, Elijah. Yeah, the other thing I use a, a lot is Google Docs uh, to sync schedules and for any big job, you know, Google Sheets, Google Docs, mainly Google Sheets are we can make grids that we share across a whole team of people, like schedules, casting, props, whatever it is, locations. That's another easy thing that everyone can update together. Yeah, I, I would say between those three services, you're going to have most of production taken care of. Um, and that kind of actually moves into another listener question, actually, from our old pal Andy Young who's out here in Los Angeles, seems like business is really picking up for him. And he had a question about how you keep track of uh, different schedules or different calendars um, for all of the different projects that you're working on. Because as a freelancer, oftentimes you've got more than one project going and different deliverables and deadlines for all of that stuff. Um, Oren, do you do anything fancy for your calendar? Uh, No, I use Google Calendar. It's synced with my phone calendar it's synced with my i think it's synced with my iCal on my computers like you know the hardest part with calendars is getting like all your different calendars to be the same calendar yeah (laughs) but one thing i was thinking about andy's question the other day because i'm notoriously bad at things like knowing that something is going on today or that i have a meeting in the morning or something like that but something that is really cool in google calendar is you can make a new calendar for a project If there's more than three or four dates that I need to remember for a certain project, I'll make a calendar for that project or whoever hires me makes a calendar for that project and I'll just put all the due dates and everything on the calendar and I can turn it on or off. I can see just my personal stuff or I can see just the stuff for that project. I think that's that's a cool feature of Google Calendar and it works also in iCal and on your iPhone and I'm sure Android also is having multiple calendars in one calendar view. Yep. Yeah, that's what I do as well. And it's great for syncing with other team members as well. If you've got a wife or a roommate or a business partner and you need to keep track of what they're doing as well, sharing that calendar is pretty pretty crucial. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to do it. I also have gotten into the habit now of like sending calendar invites for things that are otherwise maybe a little mm-hmm. more casual. You know, like I'll send a calendar invite to meet a friend for coffee, which... I feel like a couple of years ago it would sound totally insane to me, but I think because we're all freelance, as a result, your time isn't as structured. You kind of have to live and die by a calendar a little bit more than a nine to fiver would. I don't know where I'm going to be or what I'm going to be working on if I don't keep it all straight in my calendar. Yeah. And the other cool thing about having these shared calendars is like, so over the past two weeks, I've worked on two different projects. And so I have a calendar on one of them shared like on the Converse job shared with the Converse producer and on the Wendy's job shared with the Wendy's producer. And so on the Converse job, I can say, I can put, I'm not available on this day and this day, like Oren unavailable mm-hmm. to Converse because I'm working on the other job and I can do the same thing on the other job. So I think part of Andy's struggles are the struggles we all have, which is like trying to keep your jobs separate from each other and also not upset with you for not being places or hitting deadlines or we even talked about this some job you worked on recently where people are all of a sudden expecting you to be somewhere and you're not available uh you know these calendars can hopefully help mitigate that yeah and just kind of make sure that everybody is clear and remembers things consistently as well so yeah uh unfortunately there's not a fancier answer than just regular old gcal andy but um i think the move of creating a new calendar for each project and also marking yourself unavailable on other people's projects and sharing those with all of your team members is, um, is kind of the key to success. Well, if you guys didn't think it's, it could get more exciting than talking about calendars and large file sharing on a filmmaking podcast, uh, we, we have a question that's actually a little more film related and it's from Nick Schneider. What up, Nick? We saw you, uh, Nick, uh, dropped us a um, an iTunes review as well. So shout out to Nick, double whammy. We appreciate it, man. 
uh, Nick Snyder writes, Hey guys, the podcast is awesome. I love the genuine perspective you and your guests give to the audience. It's been really cool watching the progression of the podcast, and although I'm sad to be out of episodes to binge, I'm happy to be all caught up. Can't wait for more. P.S. I sent you an email with some questions. Check it out. Hey, thanks, Nick. Um, uh, Oren, hit us with Nick's question. Okay, I'm going to try to summarize it, but I'll read some excerpts. My name's Nick Schneider. I'm a 22-year-old dude who just graduated from SCSU, Connecticut, with a degree in communications. Congrats. And I'm working full-time as a painter. I discovered the podcast in my search to learn more about filmmaking while I work. I just finished listening to all of them, and it was really cool watching your progression. He says... Unlike nearly everyone else I've learned about, I have not been obsessed with film or making stuff since I was a little kid. I definitely had a love for it when I was younger, but I never pursued it as a career. Uh, I've always, however, loved stories. And he took a class in college, made a short film, and basically fell in love with filmmaking. And over the past few years, I've been editing and making anything I can get my hands on. Uh... So you guys are both always talking about how important it is to move to L.A., so I made that a part of my plan. L.A. seems like a solid place to set up. But I have a couple of questions. How much money would you recommend a person have saved up for a move to L.A. with a very minimalist lifestyle and the ability to work in a variety of jobs? Uh, Also, I have a couple connections in L.A., but nothing seriously personal. What would you guys recommend my first course of action be after moving there? Is it essential that I have a job lined up? Finally, the funniest question by far is do you know many others like me who have discovered a passion for filmmaking later on in their life so start with the end first, i'm just going to answer that last question first <laughs> which is like dude you're 22 years old you're barely an adult um you have so much time you should not be worried at don't worry all. about that at i was an engineer for four years after i graduated college and then decided i want to be a filmmaker when i was 25 so uh, you are totally cool. Totally cool. At being 22, it's a great age to move to LA. You can even wait a few years if you want. Yeah, I, I would also say, that I think there's a little bit of a an advantage to having a slightly outsider perspective, right? Like, there, it's it's wonderful to run around as a kid and like shoot videos with your friends in high school and all that stuff. And to be like, I want to, you know, go to film school and spend every Saturday at the movies. You know, that's what I did. It's, all my friends did that. And that's it's cool. It's great. It's awesome. I loved my childhood. However, um, there's a lot of us who fucking just care about ET, you know. So um, having a fine arts background makes you more interesting. Um, being artistic, you know, and f- you can always watch movies later. So like having interesting stories, having different artistic backgrounds—that's all that makes you a stronger filmmaker. And, and having a new perspective is really valuable and important. And finally, I think people are kind of really acknowledging how important it is to have different voices um, being represented in filmmaking. So I think it's a fucking awesome time. You know, it's perfect. Yeah. So when he said, I'm working full time as a painter, you assumed that he was a fine oh, art painter. Oh, that's true. He could be. He could I be thought he was painting houses. houses. That's true. Yeah. Um, which is a great uh, job right out of school. Um, either way, life experience though. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a difference between... Um, like working for a yeah, living. Maybe he's painting pictures of houses. <laughs> he's painting pictures of houses. Yeah, I suppose it is a lot. Uh, that's pretty daft of me. It's a lot harder to uh, move straight out of school <laughs> and like be a fine artist. Um, uh, but maybe he is. Maybe he is. But whatever he's doing, it's not important enough that he needs to focus because he's listening to our podcast while he's speaking working. Speaking of lack of perspective, um, um, that's my lack of perspective. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm yes. just like, oh, of course. Oh, <laughs> oh um, is, th- is that an art it's joke? It's an art joke. Yeah, Nick, I think life is good, man. Hang out. Like, hang out with your friends. Move on out here. And um, it's certainly not too late. Just kind of jump in. Like we've been saying on the podcast for two years now. Just uh, crew around, and you'll make some friends, and you'll have a great time, and you'll figure out what you like. Well, let's answer the more interesting part of his question, which is how much money should he have saved up when he moves to L.A.? If he's kind of a young guy that doesn't spend doesn't a ton of money. money. Yeah, that's a that's a real great question. So um, let's just do it by the numbers, right? Uh, so assume you're going to have a... Well, if you have buddies moving out at the same time, I think that's always a real recipe for success because you can all commiserate together 
and also help each other get jobs and go out together and have fun together. You know, I remember when I was in college, Saturday night, we would all brew a, a pot of coffee each and just get like fucked up on coffee and watch TV all night. And mm. Orange just gr- okay. grimacing. Oh, it was so much fun. But like, that's the sort of shit that you do when you, you know, get fucked up on coffee. Yeah, it was, okay. Oh, man, it was great. It was so much fun. No, it, it's awesome. But still, look, the reality is when we, when Matt and I say like you should move to LA, we don't mean you should move to Orange County or you should move to like Bakersfield. We mean you should move to a place sure. where you're like everywhere you're hanging out, there's people that there's opportunities sure. for work and so to meet people and to make that stuff. being said though, you can move to North Hollywood. You can move to Hollywood. You can yeah. move to downtown. downtown. You can move to downtown's pretty expensive. Koreatown. Now, Koreatown. I lived in Koreatown for years. You can move to Glendale. Further north in the valley gets a little bit further out. You know, uh, maybe you're not quite so central to meeting people and things like that. But you can certainly there there are parts of the valley that I think are still great places to live. But like we're talking about the convenience of being in the mix of meeting other young industry people. I would move to North Hollywood, honestly. It, I think there's still a lot of um, opportunity out there. It's not that expensive. And the commute to most places is pretty good. I bet you rent is not cheap there in North Hollywood. Here's a quick little thing, Nick. When you're renting, you can always use Craigslist. That's a good good move for sure. Um, you can also... Westside Rentals is the thing, especially I think when we were looking for apartments. Like Westside Rentals was the system for getting an apartment. Um, you should be aware, though, there are a lot of uh, scam artists out there now who are uh, trying to get you to put money down before you see the apartment. What? And they're just taking the money and there's no actual apartment. So if it's too good to be true, it's not. Um, and I literally have a, a friend who's moving into North Hollywood and has been around and got scammed that way. It's like a, it's a common thing. And an Uber driver told me about that as well. Wow. Um, so such a bummer. But so here we are. This is a standard 1200 bucks, one bath, quiet building, 1,195, one bath, all utilities included. Yeah. So I would say a thousand bucks, basically a month. I'm seeing like rooms for rent in a house for 800. But also, I would say that typically people move to L.A., kind of get the lay of the land, and then realize what neighborhood they actually want to live in. You know what I mean? And do you think he has to have a car? Yeah. I think especially if you want to start out as a PA, that's basically a requirement. I would I would definitely buy a car before I move to Los Angeles. I don't know. I guess just to throw out a totally random number, I think if you saved up like ten grand, you could come and live in L.A. for like three to four months like on a you know not fancy but like how you're describing Mm -hmm. and I think three to four months will be more than enough for you to find like build a network of people that will hire you and pay you enough to sustain your life if that makes sense you know I would would you agree I I think 10,000 bucks sounds like the right number that sounds it probably feels pretty darn high that's a lot of money you know but I think like you do want to give yourself a little a cushion so that you can really avoid getting that day job because the thing you don't want to have happen is that you move here, you find a cheap place to live, and then you know after a month you really you need to make rent, and so you go get a job at Bed Bath and Beyond, and then it becomes harder and harder and harder to find an industry job because you become dependent on that, and then you make some friends, and then you become assistant manager, and before you know it. You have a bunch of free towels. Yeah, a bunch of free towels. And crushed dreams. So, you know, I think that's helpful. Again, like I said, like having some buddies to move out with is important or valuable. Look, you can always like drive Uber or like deliver Postmates if you need a little extra cash. And that's like a not, that's a low commitment sort of job. I know plenty of screenwriters and actors who do that from time to time if the time gets tough. Let me ask you, Orin. Yeah. I I think actually a couple months is like maybe a little... A little aggressive for for feeling like oh I'm gonna have like a great network by then right I just I just had coffee with a friend of mine or a mutual friend who it's a person who just moved out they wanted to start performing they're like they took a crash course and all these awesome classes and stuff they're doing everything right she was like a go-getter and she was like it's been four months like you know 
what should I do next? And I was like, wait, right? Just keep working, keep doing it, keep meeting people. You know what I mean? Like three months is no time at all. And so what sort of jobs would you recommend Nick look for early on? Well, right, right, right off the bat, I'll say that acting is a totally different type of thing. I just saw Chrissy Metz on um, whatever Celebrity Family Feud tonight. She's the larger woman on This Is Us. I think she's nominated for an Emmy Award or something. Mm -hmm. She said she had 81 cents in her bank account when she booked the the job on This Is Us. Uh, So acting is like, it's just much harder to predict how successful you'll be and how long it will take. Uh, but I think if you're a filmmaker, if you're someone like Nick, who's down to do anything, uh, and ideally it's film related, uh, I think someone like him could do basically exactly what I did, which is go on Craigslist, talk to people, go work for free. Literally, if you do like three or four free jobs, someone will hire you for a paid job. Uh, and that paid job will probably pay you like a hundred bucks a day to do something crappy. But if you do a few of those, you'll get like some $150 a day jobs and you'll start realizing like, oh, I'm more into the producing side, right? I, I kind of like the G&E side or DPing or like camera side or whatever wardrobe. It, you'll you'll start kind of finding your people on set and the stuff that you're gravitating towards. And then, you know, I think you can get more jobs. I really loved dolly gripping and I kind of liked sound also like boom operating. I thought those are two jobs that get you right in the action. You see the director interact with the actors. If you're doing a closed set, which is, you know, when you're shooting something kind of sensitive and they don't want a lot of people on set, the people that they always keep are the boom operator. And if your camera's on a dolly, they'll keep the dolly grip as well. So those are like to me way better than PA jobs because PAs are usually like off on runs or like watching a truck somewhere. But I had some PA jobs. I'm talking about how to see some booze early on. <laughs> yeah. Then. But I had some PA jobs that led to grip jobs um, because on super low budget things like the PAs are the grips, you know, like on a free student film you find on Craigslist. So that's what I would do personally. But I, I enjoyed kind of the manual labor and learning all the technical things. And so I get the impression that Nick probably would too. So that's what I would do if I were Nick. I would just come here, go on Craigslist, go on Mandy.com, go on, try to find the UTA job list, make friends with your neighbors, make friends with your roommates. And while you're doing all that, make your own videos. And when you meet some people on set and say, hey, you have a cool camera or you have some lights, do you want to work on a project with me? And it's like the parallel path that, you know, you work on your directing and your filmmaking while you're learning about the film industry through your day job like i did through gripping and matt did through working at comedy central and obviously matt went to film school so he cheated but that's the general idea yeah man and uh you know work your network i think the other thing maybe that is easy to forget is that there there were more people out here that you know than you realize you know like your friends aunts cousin you know moved out here and wants to be an actor go get a coffee with them like that's part of what those first few months are all about. And so uh, don't be shy and meet people and uh, everybody's here to help each other out. So um, go make it happen, guys. Yeah, I'm having coffee with some random guy tomorrow that just emailed me today. So we'll see if I can be helpful. Uh, yeah. Are you going to tell him about the podcast? I probably will mention it. <laughs> it's it's funny because I feel like when whenever I go on these coffees, it's like, oh, man, we've been doing this podcast for a couple of years now. And we have a lot of like super, like we have good advice, but we have a lot of super smart guests who would give great advice. And so you feel like such a jag telling people to listen to your podcast. But it, I do think there's a lot of wisdom in what our guests in particular are bringing up. Yeah. No, I was talking to someone yesterday and they're like, have you heard of the show American Vandal? It seems like such a good idea. Like, how did they come up with that? And I was like, eh, episode 75, <laughs> listen to it and get the answer. Um, yeah, I'll probably tell him he knew my wife's manager somehow, I'm assuming through like family friends or something. And he asked her, he wants to get into commercial directing. And so she asked my wife, she's like, doesn't your husband direct some commercial stuff? And my wife said yes. And so this guy was like, hey, I got your name from this manager at this management company. Can I take you out for coffee? So. I happen to uh, want some coffee tomorrow. Where are you going to go? Somewhere good? Coffee gets expensive. Nick, don't be surprised. 
a lot of expensive coffee out there. Well, uh, yeah, Nick, Nick, thanks so much for dropping us a line and a review. If you have a review, we'll read it out loud. Go ahead and drop a question in there. Uh, give us five stars. Give us one star. It's all good. Um, it, it does help the show grow. So uh, thanks so much, Nick. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Let's um, let's endorse some things. Unpaid endorsements. You know what? We just got an email from our old editor, Eric, who has a company called Flashpoint.io, which we had endorsed. You know, we basically mentioned it all the time, but I went and checked out their website uh, because he just emailed us again. We haven't talked to him for a little while. And he had some really awesome trailers there. So just going to plug his company. Way to go, Eric. I'll, I should check for that fun, out. For fun, Flashpoint.io. There's a movie called 12 Feet Deep. It's like about these two girls that are swimming in a swimming pool, like a you know a school swimming pool or something. And they close the cover of the swimming pool. It's like a mechanical Ooh, cover dang. while they're in there. And they have to survive while this girl from above that the cover is like torturing them and like filling the pool up with more water and like shooting a gun through the cover at them. It seems like a cool concept, but they cut a really nice trailer for it. So that's cool. That check it great. out. Flashpoint IO way to go guys. Um, uh, yeah. I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. Also I've been enjoying Ozark on Netflix. It's not like the best show of all time, but it's, it's, it's a real fun, solid watch. It's like, we're in this season where we're, we've just finished Game of Thrones and we're like waiting for the next amazing show. Uh, and it's just like a good one to kind of fill that time if you're into that Breaking Bad type of genre. Life is hard, man. Show. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got a weird one I've been sitting on for a while um, that I, I, it's, I'm going to sound like an asshole for suggesting this, but I really b- genuinely believe this is true. Do you know, or do you use Chrome as your browser? Yeah. You use Chrome as your browser, or I do use Chrome, yeah. and I have endorsed Tab that Tab app before. Yeah, one Tab, which I uh, uh, I use now actually pretty regularly. It's pretty great. You're right. Um, so thank you for that. But so I have terrible internet. So every once in a while, I'll load a browser page. I'll bro- load a tab, and it won't load. It'll be like, oh, the internet is out, and they're like, no internet connection. Default image is a little dinosaur. Do you know about this, Warren? Uh, I've seen that you dinosaur. Know the dinosaur. You yeah. know what I'm talking about? So if you, got, if you get the dinosaur and you hit the space bar. Oh, it turns into a video it game. It becomes a little video game. Yes, I did kind of and know so, about that. I forgot about it. So the, the dinosaur starts running in the desert and you hit the space bar to make him jump, jump. And then at a certain point, pterodactyls start flying at you and you use the um, arrow keys to duck. Cool. And it's that's it's just running and ducking. It's real simple, real stupid, but I use it all the time because I'll turn off the internet when I'm writing. Right. And then I'll um you know want a distraction for a second. I'll want to go on Facebook or something, but instead I get the dinosaur and I think, oh, you know what? I'll go ahead and play a stupid round of this stupid game, and then I'll die and I'll go back to writing. And it's a good way to kind of like still take your mind off things because sometimes that's a genuine thing you need to do when you're writing on something creative but also it's not you're not going to fall down the rabbit hole of going on facebook and then three hours later you're like uh what did i do with my life yeah that's that's a good one so i my endorsement is the dinosaur game um cool well uh thanks guys for listening if you have any questions or ideas or endorsements please feel free to write us we are just shoot it pod at gmail.com you can also tweet at us we are just shoot it pod on Twitter, and I'm at Smitey Pileg, and I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. Uh, we also started an Instagram account. Did you know this, Oren? I think I saw it. Yes, I started an Instagram. So far, it's only got our logo, but I promise I'm going to start posting images when we are, you know, interviewing people and stuff like that. So it'll be fun. Follow us on Instagram, and you will see who the guest is before we post the episode. Oh, by the way, our friend Blake. Uh, told me the other day that you and Matt Pollock are like the set photo Instagram kings. Instagram kings? Nice. Yeah. It's like you always know you're going to get this amazing set photo from the Mets. It's so annoying. Oh, man. Um, he didn't add the it's so annoying part. He said something much worse. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. We were just like, I was like, yeah, I know. Their photos are incredible. I don't even post any because... I don't want to be compared to those guys. Dude, you should post them. Um, you get some fun stuff. You should follow Oren on uh, on Instagram. You should follow both of us on Instagram because uh, set photos are the yeah. most fun, man. 
you should post stuff. Well, I don't know. Don't you? Some I feel like all every call sheet says like no social media. A. I don't want to be the dick that posts you, stuff. Just just hold it till later. Yeah, just hold it till later. Okay. To me, it's like hey, we're having an adventure. I love seeing Pollock's photos. You know, like mm, my my I'm feed like, right uh, now. He got another show. You're doing cool stuff too, man. My feed is like delicious looking brunches, people's cute babies, <laughs> and friends on set. And life is good. Welcome to Just Hipsters. <laughs> um, life is good. This episode was edited by Jay McAuliffe. Thanks, Jay. And the music was provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Ewan Williams is our uh, webmaster. Thanks, Ewan. Helping us... Uh, Keep the site nice and tight. Thanks, Ewan. Yeah, check out our website, justshootitpod.com. And uh, leave us a review on iTunes if you get a chance. Thanks, everybody. Catch you next time. Bye.